Satori Magazine is a space for thought-provoking content. By exposing ourselves to ideas, thoughts, experiences and life lessons, we might stumble across something which gives us new insight or a change of perspective. I'm Lawrence Rice, and I've been chatting to people about life, inspiration, the universe, and whatever else pops up along the way. What you're about to hear is the edited results of those recordings. The voices you will hear belong to Pico Ayer, Lawrence Torcello, Elisha Goldstein, BJ Miller, Parnit Pal, and Lynn Didanen. Today's main contributor is Pico Ayer. You seem as well known for documenting the inner journey of the human mind as much as you are your experiences of the outside external world. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you say that uh, because it, it was fairly conscious on my part. I think even as a kid, I was thinking, well, many of us have two main obligations in life. One is to get to know the wider world and the other is to get to know ourselves and how to respond to it. And so mm. I very deliberately spent really my first 12 years and five books exhaustively going everywhere from you know, Easter Island to North Korea to Bhutan. And then mm. the next five books very much um, on the, the inner landscape. Um, now I, I try to write do the, both at the same time, though, never easy. <laughs> and one thing I'm happy about is I don't feel I can take anywhere for granted. Uh, and I don't ever feel I can be on top of places, uh, nor do I feel I can get to the bottom of them, of them. So I feel as an outsider, I'm permanently being educated and surprised and taking places I didn't expect. You're never at the top and never quite at the bottom. Do you find sort of knowing that there's an element of, of, of letting go there? Is, there? is there an acceptance there in that? No, I, I love the way you put it. I think letting go is, is perfect. Um, my, my wife, who's Japanese and just sitting across the room, she was told growing up by her grandmother, always try to be in the middle of, of the, your class. Don't, don't be at the top or at the bottom, which, of course, is a very Japanese notion. But you're absolutely right. Because I remember when I was a kid and we were really encouraged by our teachers and our exams to, to do as much as to do as well as possible, to come out on top and to give the impression of knowing everything. Mm. And I think the older I've got in life, the more I see I don't have a clue. And I'm almost delighted by that because it, it leaves room for surprise, for humility. It puts me in my place. You know, I think in the United States, we're always hearing about masters of the universe. And I almost feel I'd rather be a servant of the universe. And I certainly find, to my surprise, I think, the older I get, all the best plans and every plan that's made for me um, is made by life. So would, would you say you have a relationship to your universe? Well, yes, I, I, I never thought of it like that, but that's a lovely way to put it. And also, I feel that any argument with reality is an argument I'm going to lose. Hmm. So I might as well live with it. And so, yes, relation with the universe is a perfect way of putting it, because I think of reality as our partner. And as with hmm. all our partners or our colleagues, much of the time it's difficult. Some of the time it's impossible. But we have to learn to work with them, as we do with our with our spouses or our friends or the people in the office. I know in um, in Zen circles, they say, don't know mind is the most essential thing, and it's a form of, of intimacy. Um, and actually, I, I'm bringing out a book at the end of this year called The Half-Known World. And it's partly 
that sense that everything that's most important in life, almost by definition, is what we can, can't understand and never can get to the bottom of. Falling mm. in love, faith, terror, wonder. I mean, these, these epochal things that happen to us are, are, are always outside our grasp. And that's maybe partly why they have um, such an effect on us. And the things that we know um, are really the inessential things in life, at least in my case. Sometimes in life, I think you can just turn the coin and it's the same coin, but you realize there's a whole other side. Perfect. Yes. I mean, it goes right to what you were saying at the beginning about, about letting go. Absolutely. And I think in terms of what you were saying, even more important than maybe talking to the universe is listening to the universe. Because I think most of us by yeah. nature are all, in, are all too inclined to talk to, to everybody and tell the universe what our plans are. But mm. what really takes skill is listening to the plans that the universe has for us. And of course, every writer or I'm sure musician or painter, or whatever your, your form is, you quickly learn um, that the ideal is to have your plans overturned you know every time I'm writing something I'll carefully make an outline and I'll organize my details and I'll I'll delude myself with the sense I know where I'm going but in every case I hope I'm going to be diverted and all kinds of things are going to come out of me I didn't know I even had inside me which is probably people would say maybe the universe talking through me or I'm sufficiently opened out like a vessel that that I'm I'm receptive to whatever is in the air or uh, but it's a mysterious and and fascinating thing um, yeah. that all of us in any context are talking to a friend suddenly things will will find will hear ourselves saying things we didn't know we believed yeah but we do believe them and and that's the beauty of life really that we don't even know know ourselves and we don't know where things are coming from us. So the other, I, I remember a few months ago, I was talking to a friend and I was saying, all the best um, ideas come out of the blue. And he answered wonderfully, what, what is, is the blue? blue? <laughs> and I said, well, who knows? And we don't really need to, to say where it is, but some, whatever, you, however you choose to define it, something out there outside ourselves is, is probably got more going on than what's inside ourselves. If you think about, even right now, how I'm showing up is completely dependent on the quality of my energy that my, the mitochondria in my cells are producing in this moment. So mitochondria are kind of the power plants in our cells. Um, they, they use the fuel from the food that we ingest and convert it into chemical energy. And that energy then allows us to be alert, to be alive, to breathe, and to do all of the things that we're doing, to think, to say, to interact with others. Mm. And the quality of this energy is dependent on many different factors. So it's dependent on my genetics, which I don't have any control over, mm -hmm. the genes that I was born with. It's dependent on... Um, my previous life experiences through my childhood and adulthood. Again, you have very little control over that. Yeah. And through that process, I have developed certain patterns of behavior mm. based on my genetics, based on the people around me, based on my life experiences, based on the resources that I had access to. And all of those are coming together 
all those causes and conditions are coming together in this moment, along with the choices that I'm making mm. in terms of the food that I eat, for example. And all of that comes together beautifully. We produce that energy. It's of a certain quality that allows me to respond to whatever's happening in my environment. And from a more Vedantic or spiritual perspective, those habitual patterns of response would be termed within the frame, would be contextualized within the concept of karma, which is cause and effect. All actions have certain consequences, and based on those consequences, you develop these habitual uh, loops or habit patterns in the mind, mm. uh, which then inform the way that you will respond to in the future. So when you think about it, and this goes back to this idea of how much free will do we have or uh, how much agency do we have in every single moment? And again, I don't claim to know the answer to that question, but I think in my investigation, uh, what um, some of the realization that I've come to is that we have a very narrow window of control mm. because of all the other factors that are beyond our control. Yeah. But I, I, I believe we do have some control and that control uh, is in terms of the choices that I make about the food that I eat, how much I move during the day, how I choose to um, um, deal with the stressful emotions that come up. How do I, what is the relationship that I have to the thoughts that are coming up in my mind? And so I, every moment is um, an opportunity to make a choice to either resort to our habitual patterns of being yeah. uh, or to take a pause and step back and, and choose um, skillfully. And, and I think that's the balance or that's the paradox I think that uh, you were referring to as well, which is, yes, there's a lot of things that are happening uh, beyond our control um, very elegantly for the most part. And that's mm, the yeah. beautiful design and intelligence and wisdom of, of the universe. And as a conscious being, I have a, a modicum of uh, control over how I show up. And so I think for me, it's about being in the state of awe and wonder of that, the part that's beyond my control, but also taking responsibility for the parts that I um, do have influence over. You, you know, back before cell phones were so ubiquitous, mm. and I was a, a younger philosophy student, one of the things I found so great about studying philosophy is that I was never bored because wherever I was, I could think about something that was a philosophical problem and just enjoy contemplating this thing. And that is still available, but I have to fight the distraction of that, that smartphone that's in my pocket. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's... it's We've lost, that's a real tragedy. If we lose the joy of, of just contemplating something while we look out a window, we get, I think we get a lot of work done that way sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes wonder what thoughts are being lost while people are scrolling through you know, their social media. Yeah. Um, maybe great artworks are being lost. 
right now because somebody's distracting themselves. How long was the train for? An hour, yeah? Yeah, about an hour. Right. And is Liam definitely coming or...? Yeah, yeah, we Okay, all right, no worries. Okay, I'll see you soon then. There's something about it manifesting and saying it out loud that gives it some depth and then people can... And as you say, sometimes it's, it's just yourself. As you say something, you realise and you develop it and you, yes. you put it out and you make it a real thing in the universe. Yes. Yes, and, it, and it's so interesting to go back to what you were saying a couple of minutes ago when you said that the last couple of years you've been thinking about the relation with the universe. And my suspicion is everybody who's listening to this conversation knows that sensation because I think that's really what the pandemic has been about. And it's mm. freed us from the illusion of control and it's reminded us that uh, we can control much less in the external environment than we knew, but perhaps we can control much more in the in internal environment, how we respond to it than we suspect. And by that, I mean that even three years ago, you or I didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow mm. or even night, but we proceeded as if we did. And the pandemic has really underlined the rather deadly vengeance that none of us has known what's going to happen in the next hour for all these two years. Uh, and it's always the case, but it's easy for us to pretend it's not the case until we're in this rather extreme situation where actually our, our relation with the universe or our conversation with the universe is the main thing that's going on um, day after day. Probably in all kinds of ways, people have been speaking and maybe listening to the universe more these last two years than in any time in my lifetime. Yeah. So we're, we're, we haven't been in control of anything and we can't be really. Have you always been this laid back? You say that you were studying Chinese language, was that right? Chinese mm -hmm. language? Yeah. Just because it, you were really interested and you with no, yeah. with no idea where it would go. I think for a long time in my life, I felt like everything had to lead to something else. And on a daily level, on a, you know, on my career mm -hmm. level, and probably also on a like on an existential level that everything had to mean mm -hmm. something and everything happens for a reason and... You know, mm -hmm. that was a sort of like for a non-religious person, I that, that was very mm -hmm. much me. So I'm I'm amazed and impressed and jealous that you mm -hmm. would be able to go into studying something like Chinese language just because and I, I mm -hmm. sorry, I'm going to go off a little bit here as well. Please, buddy, please. That I think that's the right way to do things in a way to go off and do all this stuff and then realize that it might have a meaning instead of being so fixed like I cannot get off these tracks because it all must go somewhere and then you realize down the line like hang on mm -hmm. I, I don't even know I'm so fixated on the tracks do you know what I mean 
I so know what you mean. I am I, don't know, I am nodding as vigorously as my little <laughs> head will go. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I should say, you know, I, this was relatively new territory for me too. I think I, I had this sense in me, but I hadn't been in the habit of listening to it, mm. except in the months, really just a few months, the year preceding my injury. I right. had had a, a series of experiences as a younger person of being pretty miserable and all sorts of things. And um, sort of increasingly disillusioned with this or strategically minded pathway forward all the time. You know, sure. everything was a means to an end. Yeah. Something always in front of your heading. You got to head somewhere. You know, I was absolutely wrapped up in that. And where I grew up was a place littered with that kind of thinking and all that. So to mm. be clear, I was not, Okay. This wasn't my natural state in a lot of ways. Right. It was though, and I got a little tip from my older sister who said, you know, I went to Princeton, this very, you know, vaunted university, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, it's an, it is, it is an ivory tower. Yeah. <laughs> it is. So she had tipped mm -hmm. me off as like, yeah, go there. Don't feel bad about it. Like it's not, you know, take it for what it's worth. Have, you know, it's going to teach you many things. Yeah. And it's not going to do some other things. Just use it for what it's worth. And and it was, so that kind of tip mixed with like looking at this course catalog in this aesthetically overwhelming campus, which was so beautiful, but that combination sort of coaxed me into going down this path of seeing, you know, not knowing where an interest was going to take me, but rather following the interest itself. Mm. Um it will have, it will lead to somewhere. Everything leads to somewhere. You just don't, the trick is I don't get to know or ask that it go anywhere in particular. It was sort of freed me from the need of any particular destination, knowing that I was going to get to a destination. Yeah, so yeah. there was a little bit of a kernel that I would tripped onto the year before. Okay. And then these experiences in the burn unit really kind of was being further broken down by that experience and yeah. being shattered from what I thought was my future in any way, being shattered from what had been my typical relationship to my body and my life, all of that had to change in a way. So you put mm. all that together and that's where I kind of allowed, that allowed me to get through to this zone that we're talking about now. Yeah. And by the way, I've, I have lost that, feeling a zillion times over and refound it. And I have found my way to applying myself in strategic ways. And I'm trying to be a person that can do both can move between this sort of or intended future and a release from the need to reach that particular future. I've been trying to cultivate both. Yeah. 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 Because without, it's good to sort of have a little, bit of a hold of both lines and just whenever you feel one you can check on the other and then you exactly. get, get a little bit of balance you know exactly that's one of the great realizations is that not only can you hold both but there's this marvelous interplay between these two kind of strands like you're saying mm. and i'm mm. sure there are many other strands of course and then you start feeling yourself like this thing suspended in these moments of tension and these axes of tension and these different ways of being mm. and you as a human being one of the great realizations holy shit i don't have to decide i get to play with all these things they're all you know that's that's gets you to that meta place where you're looking kind of looking down or looking out at yourself in the world and you're looking at the world with yourself in it and then you see all these forces at play 
then you start having perhaps maybe some agency of choosing the strand to suit your need at the time. Mm. I don't, I'm going to be a little careful. I certainly haven't found that I have that much control over that, that much choice, but there's a lot of choice in there. Yeah. Um, so anyway, work in progress. Oh yeah. And it will never stop being a work in progress. <laughs> no. I don't think. And that's been reassuring for me. Yes, exactly. I, I love that realization. Therefore, if we don't feel complete, well, that's no longer a, a, a comment on us, us failing to, a, to achieve ourselves or realize ourselves in this world. So when you realize that it's an ongoing, ever achieving, ever unfurling thing, well, then the pressure's off to arrive any one place. And yeah. I really need someone to remove that pressure because I would otherwise follow that. I have preternaturally disposed to p- following that pressure thing, choosing pain as the way forward. And I, right. I'm trying to not do that either. What we're talking about in that balance and the way you described it there, what I started to think about was um, it makes decisions a lot easier when you know that you, it almost doesn't matter to a degree because you know that whichever one you do, you'll do that. And then the next time something happens, you'll make another decision because I've definitely had times in my life where you're like standing at the door for 10 minutes being like, Oh, do I want a jacket? Oh, but what if it doesn't rain? I'm going to be carrying the jacket. And, you know, I think the more you, you, you can, the more practice you get with that kind of thing, you just, you get that flow state and it's, you know, maybe it's momentum and things and, and just being sure of yourself. And those those are really important things to me because, uh, yeah, I feel like I was a very passive young person and it's, as I say, it's taking me my whole life and I'm slowly understanding these things more and more. Me too. Um, Well, yeah, me too. This, this is, this is the conversation in a way. This is sort of the daily thing. I don't know where it'll take either of us. And anyway, amen. I'm with you all the way. Last week, my wife gave me a very nice little box of uh, chocolates for Valentine's Day with a lovely message in French on them. And yesterday, having eaten the chocolates, I said to her, I thought sweetly, oh, I'm going to have to keep this this box forever because it's got such a nice message. And she said, you're just going to end up burdened by that. Are you really going to look at it three years from now? And is it really going to have meaning? Keep it in your head and get rid of it now. She, being Japanese, is very good at at decluttering. And I was so glad Mm. um, of, of that liberation. So like you, I'm not, I'm, or maybe more than you, I'm not good at letting go. But what I try to do is put myself in situations where I let go without even thinking of it in the sense that, you know, if I'm playing tennis or if I'm writing or if I'm involved, really involved in a situation, um, I let go of my plans, my preconceptions, my notions. I'm, I'm, I'm much freer. And each one of us has those activities where she or he is her freest self. And in our freest self, we can most see through the, the prisons we create for ourselves, maybe with our with our possessions or our, our habits. So although letting go is very difficult, uh, I think to myself, um, for example, as a writer, when I'm surrounded by my notes, every mm. one is so precious. I've gone to all the trouble of taking it down and, and inscribing yeah. it. I got to put it in the book and inflict it on the reader. And the best solution for me to that is taking a walk around the block, taking a walk for 20 minutes. And as soon as I'm away from it, I realize, oh, I don't need need it. And the thing's going to be much easier to write if I'm working with six pieces of data rather than 10. And then I can come back because there's something about the process of walking that is taking me to 
a place of concentration where I can see past the silliness that I have when I'm surrounded by my index cards, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all of us have in ourselves those places of greater concentration, which are probably places of greater letting go, letting go and wisdom, and those hoarding parts of us. And the trick maybe is to get to those places where we're most expansive and liberated. Yeah, well, editing is actually a, uh, a very liberating experience, I find now. The idea of being ruthless with your own work um, is scary, but I find absolutely wonderful. Yes, I think uh, limits and deadlines are always a blessing. And I've reached the point where I'd much rather actually receive an assignment from somebody else than from myself. Because right. if you were suddenly to tell me to write about a ball of string, <laughs> I, I couldn't fall back on my old maneuvers and say the same kind of thing I said a hundred times. Yeah. Whereas if I choose a topic, I'm much more likely to just tread the same water that I've tread many times. At the same time, I, I, I remember I was talking about self-forgiveness a few minutes ago. And I think as an editor in any form, um, I'm a believer in that insofar as when I meet people who are writing, their fiercest enemy is the inner critic. I can never make mm. this perfect. It's not good enough. Everybody's going to be laughing at me when they see this. And I think there one can afford to, to let go of one's, one's, one's concerns often um, because nobody's perfect. And even Shakespeare, mm. probably 80% of the people on the planet are not in a hurry to, to listen to. And I'm sure he got very bad reviews the way the rest of us do. So in some ways, I think we can afford to, to we can certainly let, let go of some of material, as you were saying. And I'm always grateful if I've written something that's 20 pages long, if an editor says, make it 12 pages, I'm very ungrateful at first, but mm. in the end, probably glad of that. Um, but when I go back to see something I've written 30 years ago, I'm usually surprised, not by how bad it is, but by how good it is, which is yeah. not a reflection of my being good. It's just that actually what we do is often much better than we can see at the time and much better than we could do later. So when I meet people who are interested in writing, I will often say to them, and this again ties in with what we were discussing before, write as much as you can when you're 22, 23 years old, because you will see things when you're 23 that you wouldn't see at 43 or 63. Mm. Uh, and, and in a certain ways, we're wiser because less self-conscious when we're very young um, than later. And later, perhaps we get better at craft, but we get much less good at, at spontaneity or to put it in your times, um, letting go. And I think when I think of sort of popular musicians um, that I followed at the course of my lifetime, I'm still stunned that um, whether it's Bob Dylan or Jackson Brown or Joni Mitchell or Bruce Springsteen, all of them wrote things in their 20s I don't think they could begin to touch in their 50s. Mm. Uh, and it's not just because music depends on a certain youthful energy. I think it, it's often true of writers and, of course, of mathematicians and people in, um, in, in, in many fields. But again, we're wiser when we, when we don't know what's going on. And certainly when we're kids, we don't know what's going on in that time. Even though I take this same walk almost every day, I always see something new. And I found that in the last few months, 
I look more closely at tiny things. Mm. So although I'm enjoying the whole scene and the whole walk, but I'm finding these little tiny things that I've never paid any attention to. Yeah. So during the uh, during the last uh, few months, I, I would say more in um, probably April, April through mid-May, mm. I watched um, uh, some fungus rise up out of the floor of the forest. And every day I would take a photograph to, as it moved a little further up and a little further up. And then, Lawrence, I had to get under it. I wanted to take photographs mm. of the gills. And I took these fabulous photographs of the underside of the mushroom. Mm. Now, this may sound like commonplace for people who spend a lot of time in nature and in the outdoors. But I'm a cultural anthropologist. My whole life has been spent with human beings yeah. and paying attention to human culture. And this is, so these are discoveries for me. These are, these are new thoughts. These are new ways of seeing the world. And um, so I love it. I guess you can tell I love it. It's just really exciting. I've done that before on walks that I go quite regularly actually yes. taking photos of moss and lichen i really love lichen. yes and, yes um, oh yes me too and suddenly if you, you if you're looking at it without the context it can entirely change your perception of what you believe it can be which in itself is quite an inspiring practice to do that's, that's true too i i like that 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 way of thinking and mind you um these the things i see mm. In my woods, I have also a kind of cultural history attachment to these right, things yeah, as well. Yeah. I mean, the cedar is is the magnificent all-purpose tree of Northwest indigenous people. Mm. And so when I behold the cedar trees, I cannot not think of all the uses they've been put to over the thousands of years that people have lived here. So there is that. I'm still the anthropologist somewhere in this brain is that perception, that that way of seeing the world. So that's fun too. Yeah. 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 So it keeps me stirred up. It's if we call that inspiration, it keeps me stirred up. Yeah. It keeps me alive. It keeps me learning. So many books I could recommend, but since this is on 
behalf of Satori. And probably most people know that Satori is a Zen phrase that has to do with moment of illumination, which I think is what you and I have been talking about in different ways. Mm. The book that I send to any of my friends when they're down in dumps or feeling a bit confused or sad or even ill is a Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shunryu Suzuki, who is a clear, kind, wise Japanese man who um, set up the first Zen monastery outside Japan, or first Zen monastery in in the United uh, in the West, uh, right. in the late 1960s. And Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind is just a hundred page long transcription of various talks that he gave, happily. Um, he was giving his talks in English and his English wasn't fluent. So they're very clear, they're very transparent. And there's some sense in which you could live for an entire lifetime with almost any sentence in in that book. There's so Mm. much going on in each sentence. But at the same time, they have this uh, kind of mountain stream clarity. So just reading it uh, admits air into into your system and into your being. And I think makes you feel calmer and clearer than you might be otherwise. So that's a kind of medicinal book I prescribe to myself and to my friends. That sounds fantastic. I will, I will look into it. Thank you very much. Um, and I have one final question for you then. Mm. Uh, would you be able to tell me about a moment of Satori you may have experienced yourself? Yes, so maybe I'll present it as a moment of, of discovery or illumination sure, and not as exalted as Satori, which might be suddenly finding out the secret of the universe. But I remember <laughs> in my in my uh, late 20s, uh, Tibet suddenly opened up to the world for the first time in, in history, really, in the ni- early 1980s. Mm. And so I, I went there as, as quickly as I could. And in those days, Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, was just a cluster of little whitewashed buildings uh, built around um, an old shopping district with a temple at the center. And overlooking the town was the thousand-roomed Patala Palace, which is where the Dalai Lamas had lived. But it was very, very undeveloped still in 1985. And maybe my second day there, of course, I took a walk to the Patala Palace, one of the great architectural wonders of the world. And after going through some of the rooms where monks were chanting and where um, beautiful uh, scrolls and statues, wherever one turned, I stepped out into the balcony in this high sunlight under cobalt skies, looking across the valley to the snow-capped mountains in the distance. And uh, I might have been suffering from jet lag of a kind and maybe from altitude sickness because it's 10,000 feet above sea level and maybe from culture shock too. But for whatever reason, that moment I felt I was not just on the rooftop of the world, which is what Tibet is sometimes called, but I was on the rooftop of my being. I was at some level of consciousness or lightheadedness maybe that I'd never experienced before. Mm. And and that in all my classrooms or that in the office in New York City to which I was returning, I felt they were not going to give me access to whatever I was feeling at that moment. In other words, the world was much larger and, and richer than I had imagined, and that it would be a crime to go back to my office in New York City and not pursue whatever this intimation was that I felt just standing out in the sun in that very high place. And one surprising counterintuitive decision I made then and there was 
not to extend my stay, but I told myself, these are days of heaven that I will remember for the rest of my life. So I'm going to leave after only four days so that this makes a, a rounded hole in my memory, not a sort of diffused blur if, if I were to stay two weeks or three weeks. Mm. Um, so I left after four days, only two days after being on that terrace at the Patala Palace. And it's true now, 37 years on, I can remember it feels like every hour of that four day stay and it's also true that nothing in the last 37 years has ever quite touched that or effaced it and so i don't know exactly what satori means but i think all of us in the course of our lives have these moments like you when you were studying music when we get a sense of how much there is beyond us and how mm -hmm. many higher mountains there are than the ones we've seen uh, and, and how vast the universe is and and that's almost to me the great greatest uh, treasure that one can get, partly because, as you and I have been saying in many ways, it jolts us out of our habits. In that case, it forced me away from my office in Midtown Manhattan. It moved me to go and try to live in a in a monastery in, in Japan. And 34 years on, here I am still in Japan. So I got a sense, perhaps, of the life I should have been leading and could yet be leading. Uh, and um, that was probably all the illumination I needed. Thank you.